If you have a Bible with you tonight, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah once again. We are doing a little four-week series on stay calm, Emmanuel is coming. Now, I picked that word, stay calm, because it actually appears in chapter 7. We haven't gotten there yet, uh, but over in chapter 7, uh, you have here uh, the king Ahaz, who is trembling. And the word there is calm down. <laughs> that's the word there. Calm down, because God's promises are near. And that's where he gives the sign of this virgin who will uh, bring forth a son. We haven't got to seven yet, but that's why we're saying stay calm. Emmanuel is coming here in this four-week series of sermons. So Isaiah chapter 1, once again, we're still looking at just some introductory lessons about his ministry and his calling, who he is as a prophet. It's good to have this backdrop uh, as we get closer. We're going to look at 6 tonight, and uh, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight and observe the table, be good that we know something of God's nearness and his holiness and who he is as we get to chapter 6 a little bit later in the sermon. But again, this is all backdrop information. But it's information for the heart and for the life. It's, for, it's to transform us. This is God's word. This is the Lord who's ministering to us through his word. Even as we inch through these opening chapters is what we're doing to get over to 7 and probably 9, maybe something from chapter 40 as we close out this series. Chapter 1 here in the book of Isaiah. I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, skip a few verses here, but, uh, and, we'll, and we'll look on back at chapter 3 too. Um, but here is the word of God, the book of Isaiah. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, an offering, uh, offspring of ev evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Let's go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 at verse 8. Similar words where Isaiah is bringing... A very forthright word of chastisement at verse 8 and following. Similar words. <clears throat> For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds against the Lord, are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For look on their faces. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants and their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Why do you mean, what do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, 
Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in the Proverbs that it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. And so we pray as kings and queens, uh, princes and princesses in your kingdom, we would search the scriptures tonight, see all that you have for us, O Lord, and by your spirit have the illumination, Lord, of our hearts. Teach us, guide us, make this fresh in our hearts and lives. We pray that we would adorn Christ. We would go to Jesus and see him and find him and have him as our own and walk in his ways. Lord, take these lessons from these early chapters and drive them home to our hearts. We come now asking, Father, for your presence here. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. We asked last time the question, why are cities important in the Bible? Why are cities important? Because we're, we've said, if you look at the opening of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, you'll find it also buried, I believe, in the middle of chapter 3 as well, that Isaiah was commissioned to be a prophet to the city of Jerusalem, to Jerusalem and Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. We looked at that last week. But in light of him being commissioned to this large capital, well known, of course, throughout all of Scripture, the capital there of Judah, the southern kingdom at this point, we've stopped to pose this question, why are cities important in the Bible? Well, cities represent the earth. We said that last week. Cities resemble the earth in miniature in this sense. They display the world. There are the languages, variety of languages in a city. There are the peoples, there are the rulers of the cities, there are the workers in the cities, houses, gardens, and we talked about craftsmen in the cities. And along with what we say are these stations in life, kings and rulers and workers and so stations in life, you also have the whole matter of the marketplace itself with its economy and business and law and medicine, the arts, family, religion, 
and education. And so Isaiah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament singled out. There are 17, 17 Bible books of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, starting here with Isaiah on down to Malachi, 17. And so he's one of the 17 singled out to speak to the city. And remember, we also said in Isaiah chapter 40, he's going to receive that message that he's to get up high on a mountain. Remember that? He's to get high on a mountain. And he even cries out that Zion itself, the city of Jerusalem, is to be lifted up. Why? So that the voice of our God through the prophet might be raised. Get high up under the mountain, O Zion, O Jerusalem. Let up, lift up your voice. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That is Isaiah shot through commission to the city of Jerusalem, but certainly the surrounding cities there in Judah. And as he enters Jerusalem, he's to do ministry, particularly with the kings. Those four kings are referenced for us in that opening part of this Bible book. Well, what's his message? We looked at this. Chapter 1, verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. He's crying out to the heavens itself and to all the earth. This message is comprehensive. And then you'll remember as well, we went back to chapter 66. So if Isaiah begins at chapter 1 and ends at 66, there's this running theme throughout the Bible that the Lord is the glorious one of heaven and earth. Because in chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 66, at the very end, we have these words, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. There you go, it's comprehensive once again. Just as he says in chapter 1, give heed, O heavens, and give heed, O earth, back here in 66, heaven is my throne room and the earth is my footstool. It's comprehensive once again. This is his message. So what is Isaiah doing? He's going into these places of, stately, of a stately circumstance and of royalty and majesty into these palaces to the kings, and he's declaring who the real authority is. Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, this is the one by whom I speak. This is the one that I give, through whom I give my message. The Lord is enthroned in heaven above, and he's the mighty one, even having the earth to be his resting place for his feet. And Isaiah is the prophet entering these palaces to these kings to declare such things. You remember he'll say in chapter 40 that the, um, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Remember that? Whom did he consult? It's, you know, rhetorical questions in chapter 40 there. Who did the Lord consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Once again, Isaiah is saying, this is the glorious Lord enthroned above. Now to push forward a bit more through these early chapters, and looking at his calling and looking at his ministry, pushing forward, let's take up two more lessons here. Once again, we, we're going to go a little bit further and dig a little bit more and a little deeper about the circumstances. This is the first point now. The circumstances of Jerusalem and Judah. And then secondly, the circumstances of Isaiah himself. You see, it's through this window 
this window of looking at the circumstances of Jerusalem and Judah a bit more co closely. And this window of looking at Isaiah's own life, particularly his calling in chapter 6, as we will see there. It's through looking at this window that we begin to see something of where the gospel always starts. <laughs> and where does the gospel always start? The way up is down. The way of exaltation is humiliation. The way of life is through death. So if there's a lesson you take home tonight, these opening chapters here in Isaiah are calling us to see rightly our own poverty. The circumstances of Jerusalem and Judah. The circumstances of Isaiah himself. To, to rightly see our own poverty. And you see, he who rightly sees his own poverty will then be turned, what, to the riches of Jesus, right? <laughs> will be turned to the riches of Jesus. And once again, this is the gospel way. The way up is down. The way of exaltation is humiliation. The way of life is through death. That's why Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you must lose your life. And that is Israel in these opening chapters. And this is Isaiah in chapter 6. Okay, let's go a bit more now with these circumstances about Jerusalem and Judah. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. What are the circumstances? How the faithful city has become whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. All I want to point out to you is that the circumstances, at one time, she's referred to as a faithful city. At one time, she is full of justice. At one time, Jerusalem and Judah is having righteousness lodged within her. So there were times of prosperity and fruitfulness and a gain but in those times of fruitfulness in those times of prosperity in those times of justice and righteousness indeed in such times of having much they began that slow decline of ruin and rebellion and apostasy this is the doctrine of man's sin, and it lines up very carefully here as Isaiah records it. This is the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of man's sin, as it comes from these words from Isaiah. You know, we can speak from the Bible about sin being pride. We can speak from the Bible about sin being transgression. But the Bible also speaks of sin being that which forsakes the Lord, turning away from the Lord. That's what you have here in the book of Isaiah. Look in the same chapter, the same chapter. This is sin being spoken of, of forsaking the Lord. Verse 4 in this chapter. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Here it is now. They have forsaken the Lord. So the backdrop here as we get inside of the circumstances of Jerusalem, this glorious city, and of Judah, the southern nation of Israel, we're getting here this backdrop that these people had now left God. It's apostasy. It's forsaking God. You see, at one time, 
They knew the blessing of God. God had provided. God had created all things perfect. Almost an echo of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Man being without sin. But what? He lost communion with God. That's what our catechism teaches us. He lost communion with God. Forsaking the way of the Lord. One theologian says it rightly. Whenever the prophets reproach Israel for its sin... This is the decisive conception. You have fallen away. You have strayed. You've been unfaithful. You've forsaken God, broken covenant. You've left him for other gods. You've turned your back on him. That's the language of sin here in these opening chapters of Isaiah. So Isaiah took this message. It was his ministry in the palaces before the kings. It was his ministry on the streets of Jerusalem as well. He's announcing here on the streets, do you see your sin rightly? You see, this too is the good news of the gospel, to see our sin rightly. But a little bit more. Turn once again to chapter 3. There's also the sin that produces this fruit, having forsaken God. Chapter 3, once again, look at verse 15. There next comes neglect of the things of Christ, haughtiness of mind, and particularly a lack of compassion. It's one thing to forsake God, but then it's turned against our fellow man, our neighbor. In what way? A neglect to the needs of others, a haughtiness, being, a se being separate from those in need, being haughty about things. And then, like I say, a lack of compassion. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will lay bare the secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finer of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. You see, not only is there the general forsaking of God, but now turning against the neighbor, turning against the poor, turning against the cause of the widow, the orphan. And it all comes with this haughtiness and especially lack, a lack of compassion. Now watch this. This indictment from God is not because Judah has so much. You see that? This indictment is not about Judah having so much, but it's because they do not serve others with what they have. They do not care for others. This is self that's focused on the target of living for self, neglecting others, a haughtiness and a lack of compassion. 
vivid words of an all-consuming pursuit of the self. The Washington Post did a interview with Shirley MacLaine. But oh, what a commentary it is about our modern times. When interviewed about her life, she said, the most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, and when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have that is working for you is yourself. That's the consummation of your identity. And she concludes, and that's what I've been trying to do all of my life. This is self that is having a focus upon this target of neglecting others with a haughtiness and a lack of compassion. Aren't these the times in which we live, right? <laughs> See, through such circumstances, we're getting a glimpse at the accuracy of how the gospel tells us we need Christ because we are men and women and boys and girls of ruin. One more now, the circumstances of Isaiah himself. Turn with me to chapter 6. We see these opening words in chapter 6 about his own circumstances of who he is. He's being called here to be a prophet. But we open with these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Simply put, once again, here is a window through which we look at the circumstances of Isaiah, and we see something of our own poverty. The way up is down. Exaltation is through humiliation. To find life, it is to die. And Jesus himself said, you know, he who would find his life must lose his life. And that's what you have here with Isaiah. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He gets this vision, this glimpse, known here as the king. <laughs> he is the Lord of hosts. He has a throne. He's high. He's lifted up. Notice this is the sanctuary scene. This is not a palace. This is Isaiah going into the temple. So that's to say God has business to do with his representative of the church, God has business to do with the church itself. First and foremost, if you want to talk about poverty, let's not blame the outsider. Let's not blame those who are estranged from the gospel. First and foremost, it's to do self-examination in the church. And that's what you have here with Isaiah. He's there in the temple, and the Lord himself is filling this temple with this robe. And there, of course, you have 
the seraphim, the angels. And this language of taking two of the wings to cover the face and two of the wings to cover the feet. Throughout scripture, it's always the face and the feet that will either tremble or will indeed be buried and hid and covered. Something to do. So when, for example, so when Moses appears there before the burning bush, the sandals are removed. There's something about being on holy ground. There's something about his feet. When God appears before Abraham, Abram is to be prostrate and fall before him, before his face. What is it about the face of God and this vision of seeing God in his presence, even as these angels are crying out in verse 3 there, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. To be in the presence of God is to know what is called the panim of God. His face is that which is the fullness of God. It's that, that word is always in the plural. And that word being in the plural, his presence or his face, means it's the fullness of who God is. So your face in the Hebrew is always in the plural. Why? Because you have two eyes and two ears. There's, there's plurality about your countenance. There are many features about your countenance. And it's all to capture the idea, this is the wholeness of the person. This is the completeness of the person. And God himself is in his wholeness, his fullness, his completeness of being there in the temple. And Isaiah, along with these angels, are having to cover their faces because they can't, they can't look upon the fullness of the panim, the face, the vision the presence of God this way. And verse 5 has it for us then. Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Isaiah himself knows the hypocrisy in his own life, saying one thing and doing something else. The church the same, Israel the same, Judah the same. Saying one thing and doing something else. The hypocritical nature of our first nature. The hypocritical practice of our first nature. Not the wholehearted devotion. Saying one thing and doing something else. He himself says, I am a man of unclean lips. I speak lies. I do not live the truth. I dwell in the midst of a people that speak lies. Who do not live the truth. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, we say we are a Reformed church. And when it comes to the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man's sin, we rightly affirm these things in our creeds and our confessional documents. We rightly affirm these things. But you see, what's going on here in chapter 6 is not merely a confession. Woe is me. I've seen the king of, 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 of glory and the king of hosts. Confession about who God is. Confession about man's sinfulness. It's more than confession. It's being driven into the heart, into the very bones and the very fiber of our being. Isaiah is having more than an emotional experience here. He's having a moral experience. He knows he is a man unworthy to dwell in the presence of God. And that's why he disintegrates, as R.C. Sproul will tell us. He disintegrates. Things fall apart. God is whole and complete. Isaiah is a man of parts, broken, falling apart. I'm lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We can confess the glory of God, and we can confess the sinfulness of man, but do it dispassionately. That's Reformed theology. Affirmation, affirmation, chapter and paragraph of the confession, affirmation, affirmation, chapter and paragraph of the confession. But where is the broken man? Where is the ruined woman? Where is the one who says, if I'm going to find life in Christ, I must die first. If there's going to be on the last day exaltation, there must be humiliation. He who would find his life must lose it first. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, what Isaiah is doing and what Judah through Isaiah is doing, in that sense, Isaiah is leading the way as a representative of God's people. And what the church must do, what good shepherd must do, what you must do, is that we must be mirror acting people. What do I mean by that? The word of God in its holiness, God himself in his word and his holiness is that mirror. And we look at the living God and we look at his law and James tells us it's the perfect law of liberty. And in looking into that mirror, it allows us to rightly see ourselves. Oh, when we, at home, in your mirror at home in the bathroom, in the hallway, I see now where that puffiness is. I see now that blemish. I see now that discoloration. Oh, I see the redness. This, too, is the good news of the gospel, to rightly see who we are under the eye of the Almighty, who sees thoroughly and completely. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Are we a mirror-bending, mirror-bent congregation? Do we go to that law of liberty? Do we rightly say, yes, Lord, you speak accurately. You know my heart. You know my mind. You play that, that DVD of my life before my eyes in your word. You know my lips being those who would be hypocritical or to speak lies or the, the simple falsehoods. You know my life of my deeds, Lord. Those angels covered their feet. Why would they cover their feet? Because it's the pathway. The walk is the, is the place of integrity. The, the deeds and the walk of the life. That's why Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their walk. God knows our walk. God knows our deeds. Are we plain spoken to him about them? You see, Jerusalem and Judah through Isaiah's message and through Isaiah himself, God is revealing himself in the temple and getting a hold of the prophet and getting a hold of Judah to see that the way down is the way up. To lose one's life is to find it. Indeed, Isaiah does that because we know he's going to be called. The, the angel comes with the tongue and that burning coal and he touches his lips to be forgiven. That's symbolic of the very 
altar of God, the place of sacrifice, comes and touches his own lips. The sacrifice is now applied to him. But then in verse 9, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. I send me. So the point is, there's a calling that's taking place here. To rightly see our sin is to rightly then turn to Christ and rightly to be called then and commissioned in Christ. Now these, these are heavy chastisement words for us, aren't they? They really are. They're sobering words. I bring you to Jesus once again. If Isaiah is in the temple and being caught up before the holy God and yet he's falling apart, he's disintegrating. Woe is me. I am ruined. We come to the New Testament and there's a greater Isaiah. And we've got two long chapters in the Gospel of John. It's beautiful, God's people. It's beautiful. Two long chapters. I'm going to slow down now. But in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, you have a greater Isaiah who's spending a lingering time in the temple in Jerusalem. Same location, book of Isaiah. And you have these words where Jesus is in the temple speaking to the Jews and speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, those around him. John 7, John 8, just a few selections. Once again, it's a temple scene. Here is the greater Isaiah. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. I'm a man of unclean lips. There's no falsehood in Jesus. Do you see why we need Jesus? Why he's come to be in Isaiah's stead in Judah's stead, in our stead. Listen to John chapter 8. You are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted, lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. If we say over here, brothers and sisters, that sin is forsaking God, walking to neglect the poor, the widow, the orphan, walking in haughtiness, lacking compassion, if this is the ruin of man, Jesus comes and he's always pleasing to his Father. Jesus comes and he always teaches what his father has so commanded him. He teaches truth, not falsehood. He comes and lives in constant communion. He says at the very end of John 8 there where I just read, and I always do the things that are pleasing to him, to my father. If man has lost communion with God, Jesus was always in communion with his father.
always do what is pleasing to him. Do you see why these opening chapters rightly help us to see our sin and they rightly help us to find our life in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in Christ tonight? Are you trusting in him alone because he is the provision of that greater prophet who came like unto Moses who would deliver the word of God, speak truth, testify of the testimonies of the living God and Father, all having to do with his cross, resurrection, and ascension. Our life is in Christ. So tonight, I urge you, where you're seated tonight, tell him exactly where you're at. Tell him that, it, it, that it's your own first nature, wanting to exalt yourself, not humble yourself. Tell him that. Tell him that it's your own first nature, that you're trying to find your life. It's the very last thing you want to do is lose your life. You want to keep your life together. That's where Mark lives. Tell him plainly. And in telling him plainly, tell him you need the one who alone is pleasing. Altogether holy, altogether the sent one from above. He told us that. You're from the earth. I'm from above. He's come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent him. And thus, in telling him you need Christ, that's where your life is. Your life is in Christ. Find him by faith, faith alone, Christ alone, by his grace alone. And that's why Jesus says, he who will lose his life, <laughs> you'll find it. You'll find your life. Joy unspeakable. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would bring the application of your word this night and drive home to our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And may we know the glories and beauties of Jesus' life for us, living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, Father. And to, and, and to know our sins are atoned for. And life with our God and Savior is that life that is everlasting. Hear us, we ask. And bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.